0: or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time. And get ready for the Intermittent Fasting
1: Podcast. Hi, everybody. I'd like to take a minute to talk about our wonderful sponsor. Now, if you've been a podcast listener for a while, you know that I was not excited about getting a juve. I had the juve go for a while that you held in your hand, and I I really enjoyed using that. But, you know, the idea of getting a big one, I just couldn't figure out where I was going to put it, how I was going to use it. Well, finally, Melanie talked me into trying the Juve, and I got the Juve Solo. That is the one panel system, and it hangs on the back of the door. Can I just tell you that I am officially obsessed with my juve? Okay, sorry, Melanie, you were right. I needed one all this time, and I just didn't know it. Um, I'm targeting a couple of areas specifically. You know, I'm about to turn 50. I've got a little little turkey neck thing going on. I think that's normal for, for women of my age, so I wanted to work on that. And I also wanted to work on my cellulite on the back of my legs that I've had ever since I was a teenager. That was really impossible to do with the handheld version. So I I got my juice solo. I hung it on the back of my bathroom door. I was excited to find that you can raise and lower it with this little pulley that it's attached to. And it's really easy to do. I I bring it down a little bit to focus on the backs of my legs. I um, raise it up when I want to work on my face or my neck man, this juve is amazing. I'm using it every day. I start with it in the morning after my shower. I have my juve time. I use it right before I go to bed at night. It helps me to wind down more juve time. And I still love my juve go. I'm going to take it with me when I go to the beach and then I'll have it there. I like to use it a few minutes before I go to bed. But to target the areas of my body, I don't know why I held out for so long Y'all, if you've been thinking about getting a juve, you really do need to get a juve solo because it's so much easier to use. You'll be glad that you did. And just like Melanie said, you know, she tries a lot of things, and I'm a little more hesitant to try them. Now I'm thinking about, hmm, if I get another unit and another unit and another unit, I can put them all together, and then I can treat everything all at once. So stay tuned. It just might happen. I'm a big believer in the, the power of the Juve. So if you're interested in finding out about all the different products that Juve offers and also looking at the fabulous research that goes with them, you know they've got a ton on their website. If you go to juve.com slash ifpodcast, you can look through the different things that they have. The Juve Solo is the one that I have now. The Juve Go is the one that I really enjoy taking with me when I'm going somewhere. I actually took it on the Delay Don't Deny cruise, which was which was a lot of fun. You know, the cabin would glow red at night. But if you um, go to the juve.com slash podcast, and if you use the code ifpodcast at checkout, they'll send you a free gift. So try it out and
0: send us an email and let us know how you like your Juve. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 112 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. And I am not just here with Jen Stevens. We have a repeat guest. We've brought somebody back. We have Dr. Ken Brown on the podcast. We had him for listeners in episode 79, and that episode was so popular, and listeners wanted to know so much more from Dr. Brown because he's really a wealth of knowledge. So we brought him back for a second episode. Super excited. So welcome, Dr. Brown.
2: Melanie, Jen, thank you so much. I did not want to bore your viewers, so I took the liberty of catching a cold a few days ago so that my voice would be a little bit different on this episode. But thank you so much for having me on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast.
1: We're glad to have you. Should we have like a, a pseudonym for you with, <laughs> with your raspy voice today?
2: This is my sexy Dr. Brown voice. We're going to be doing talking intermittent fasting tonight.
0: Fabulous. <laughs> I love it. (laughs) So Dr. Brown, a little bit about Dr. Brown. So he is a board certified gastroenterologist. He's been in practice for over 15 years and he does have a clinical focus on inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome. You may know him from our previous episode. And also if you're just familiar in general, he developed the amazing supplement Autrantil, which is really a wonder natural supplement for tackling IBS and digestive issues and SIBO and all of those things. So we are super grateful to Dr. Brown for that supplement. And I know a lot of listeners have checked it out and reported back fantastic success. I don't know. I don't think I've told you that, Dr. Brown, but we've received so much positive feedback from listeners who heard about it on our last episode and ordered it and saw really really amazing improvements in their IBS. So thank you for that.
2: No, thank you. And one of the coolest compliments I can ever get is when my staff will come to me and say, "Hey, were you on a podcast because we're getting lots of calls. Your listeners are avid people and they are very knowledgeable and they were calling my office and I love that. We encourage, we directed them from around the country to find other like-minded gastroenterologists and such. So that's we know that you're moving the needle when that kind
1: of stuff happens. Oh, that's really exciting to hear. I'm glad that you're able to connect them with doctors in their areas because that's so important.
2: It really is, and it's it's fun going around. In fact, this week, my team at Atrentil is going to San Antonio, where we're going to do the Functional Medicine, the IFM conference, and that you know we're going to be redirecting people your way. Over there, because those are all functional medicine doctors that are all trying to make a difference on a holistic level, and nothing happens unless you start changing your diet personally
1: right, and intermittent fasting is a great way to
0: to get started and giving that gut a rest absolutely yeah, so for listeners, this won't be a whole entrenteal episode part two. Um, we more wanted to bring Dr. Brown back just because he really is, like I said, a wealth of knowledge about the gut microbiome, intermittent fasting everything just going on in the body. So we really wanted to bring Dr. Brown back and really pick his mind on a few topics. Just I guess to start things off. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about yourself to recap just so they know a little bit where you're coming from and like why you got to where you are today and then we can get into what's new in the the research world.
2: Absolutely, Melanie. So my name is Ken Brown. I'm a board certified gastroenterologist in the Dallas, Texas area. I have been doing clinical research for pharmaceutical industry for about 10 years. And while I was doing that, I realized that there was a big hole in the functional medicine space. And through meeting different scientists, I was able to discover that we could actually treat people and treat their bloating and treat their gut, heal their gut through using natural products. That's ultimately how I developed this product called Teal. Since then, we've just been knocking down barriers. And my goal has been to actually bridge the gap between this traditional medicine style and this functional remedies that we have available. Because as I knocked down this one barrier and realized that, I've just learned so much. So since the first time I came on your show with the intermittent fasting and then me adapting the lifestyle and then me talking to other people, meeting other scientists, it's just creating this headwind where we're able to start helping each other. And a rising tide lifts all ships. So my model right now is let's all just share our knowledge. My background is traditional. And right now, I have a foot on each side of the fence. And I just want to make people healthier. And if we do it naturally, if we do it through diet, and sometimes we do actually need some pharmaceutical agents, some drugs.
1: Perfect, I loved hearing that you're you're bridging the gap. I think that's so important, and you know having the open mind to look to more natural type healing methods that are out there and really you know have stood the test of time we're just coming back around to them
2: well, it's really interesting because as we look at this, everybody talks about research, and what I have learned is that when you really start digging and you have the capacity, I have a graduate student that now works for us, and she is getting her master's in nutrition so she has the library access to everything that we need. And we're accumulating articles that people are not talking about. A couple of them that I want to talk about today, very interesting things that nobody talks about. So when you go to your doctor and he might say, did you eat your lucky charms this morning? (laughs) And you tell your doctor, no, I choose to skip breakfast and he goes, oh, there's an 87% chance that you're going to die of a heart attack. You'll have an idea of what's going on. Right. I'm just kind of throwing that little softball pitch out there.
1: Yeah. And I think most of us in the intermittent fasting world know what you're talking about, especially people who are in intermittent fasting groups, because whenever a news story comes out that is in any way related to intermittent fasting, our community shares it. Like, over and over and over again. And so there was quite a flurry about a, a news headline or, or a bunch of news headlines that all stemmed from this you know, study that you're talking about. So I would love for you to elaborate for our audience because probably a lot of people got you know emails from well-meaning family members who were like, see, I told you, because <laughs> it was everywhere.
2: Yeah, so this goes back to, I think, Melanie, you and I talked about this on the last episode where I was asked by a news agency to discuss the ketogenic diet. And when I did, the newscaster, a week later, ended up interviewing a cardiologist, a local cardiologist, and she said, oh, I met Dr. Brown and he was discussing the ketogenic diet. And the cardiologist flat out said, that's BS, in no uncertain terms. And she texted me and said, what was funny is he had an almond joy and a monster on his desk Uh. and he was obese. But of course, the ketogenic diet is BS. So in April of this year, in the American Journal of, or the American College of Cardiology published this study, which is a retrospective cohort study where they looked at a patient population and they tried to see if eating breakfast was good or bad, or rather, does skipping breakfast cause heart attacks? And what the news outlets concluded was that there was ultimately an 87% increased risk. So I looked USA Today, CNN. I mean, it, you know, it's the it's clickbait is what it is. And that's really what they're going for.
1: Right. Oh, yeah.
2: And the reason why I'm mad is a really good person to look at his opinion on this. Are you guys familiar with a guy named Peter Adia? Oh, yes. So super smart guy. I follow along with what he does. And a uh, former, uh, I think he's a cardiovascular surgeon, or is still is. and he wrote a whole blog on this, which is really cool because basically all these headlines are sitting there saying that skipping breakfast actually leads to an 87% chance that you're going to have a heart attack. Although the study admits that they tried to include compounds like sex, age, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, all the stuff that they always say, they're looking at the same pool of patients. And when they published it, they did it as a relative risk. So what they didn't get into is the fact that what was the absolute risk, and they didn't even comment that the people that died of heart attacks, we don't even know what they ate, what they did, and so on. What they did note is that those that didn't eat breakfast were heavier drinkers, they were unmarried, they were usually physically inactive, they had lower income, and they had lower total energy intake and essentially a poor quality of life. So factors to think about when somebody says, you know, don't do this. In 1944, it was General Foods that came out with the slogan, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, because they were launching grape nuts. Have you ever had grape nuts? Like I would have to be a marketing genius.
0: I don't think I have. I- Actually have.
1: They are so heavy. My grandmother used to eat them. You would have a bowl of them and you would just keep eating and it looks like they never disappeared. And you're like, I'm so full. Why are there so many still in my bowl?
2: <laughs> right. So whoever that was in 1944 that came up with that actually stuck. And that became the thing that we've been told as Americans. Right. Yeah. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. So when you look at this, the the hazard ratio is 1.87. That's what the news outlets reported, but they didn't look at the absolute risk, which is only a little bit more. So there's so many variables on this thing that it's like you get so angry when people come up and go, oh, they showed on Good Morning America that eating breakfast is the most important thing that you need to do and you're going to die. 87% chance of dying with a heart attack. It's infuriating because it's manipulation of the epidemiologic parameters or the epidemiologic words, which... I'm not even good at. I'm not an epidemiologist. I always have to look up relative risk, absolute risk, hazard risk. These are all unusual things. So the question is, what were these people doing? What did they eat? Did they have a donut? Did they eat at 10 a.m. when they woke up and they call that skipping breakfast and so on? So it's just a very frustrating thing on an intermittent fasting podcast when there's so much science to circadian rhythm eating that we allow something like that to, well, essentially get all over the media.
1: Right. It was really everywhere. And people were like, oh, my gosh, does this mean I'm going to have a heart attack? And people were scared. And so you have to walk it back and say, no. You know, when you really dig in, you see that these people had so many unhealthy risk factors in their lives. And I think it comes down to, you know, the people who are going to be healthier take the health advice. So they were told since 1944, eat breakfast. And so the kind of people who take health advice are more likely to be healthy. And I think that's what these you know, correlational studies show. Trying to live a healthy lifestyle means you're probably going to be healthier, whereas these people who were like a, ignoring every bit of advice, including the eat breakfast advice, they were drinking, they were smoking, they were sedentary they had poorer health outcomes because they did not take health advice. And I think that's really what these studies show.
2: Yeah, that's called a health bias. When you ask people that, they end up having that. And you can't, unfortunately, to get published.
1: Control for it, yeah.
2: Yeah, you really can't account for it. So I just thought it was so interesting and timely that that just came out in the last, what, two weeks or so that now we're on the intermittent fasting podcast.
0: Yeah, I feel like as long as breakfast is seen as part of the healthy approach – I feel like it'll always be integrated into that healthy bias paradigm because (laughs) all the, like we said, all the health, the quote, healthy people are going to be having breakfast. So it's just going to keep supporting itself. You can be healthy and have breakfast, but when we reach the opposite conclusion, I think is when it becomes a problem. And something you mentioned briefly, which I think we could explore a little bit more, you mentioned the importance of circadian rhythm with eating and timing and health and I have no idea what your thoughts are on this, Dr. Brown. What are your thoughts on eating timing as far as circadian rhythm goes and eating later in the day, eating before bed? Because I know a lot of us are late night eaters, especially in the one meal a day group. And that is something a lot of our listeners get a little bit, I think, worried about is that they shouldn't be eating later in the evening. Do you have thoughts on that?
2: Well, I guess I do a little bit. And this is not my research. I read a lot of uh, Dr. Sachin Panda's data on this. Uh, he's at the Salk Institute, I believe. And he does a lot of work on circadian rhythm. And if you read a lot of his papers and follow him, he can actually show that both in humans and in mice, but you know, most of his data is in mice, that let's say you wake up, the sun rises, you wake up 6 a.m. By 7 a.m. your melatonin starts to drop. By around 9-ish or so, stress hormones start increasing so that you can achieve your high alertness. By around 4 p.m., you can actually end up with muscle performance peak. Then around 8, melatonin starts to rise. Your body starts cooling down and starts going into the sleep process. Then that's how come the circadian rhythm is there. The problem is that... Forever, the circadian rhythm was dictated by light and blue light coming in, which is why you're seeing all these people that are now developing these blue light blockers like Dave Asprey's thing and whatever, so that people can look at computers and not stimulate because the light determines the circadian rhythm of peripheral organs. Now it's been shown, or he has shown, that food can do the same thing as light. So if you eat while your pancreas is shutting down because that's what happens when the melatonin rises and then you wake it back up, you can kind of disrupt that. So that being said, if you eat late at night, according to him, you can disrupt some of that natural circadian rhythm. And he's got some pretty good data that actually show that shift workers can have higher incidence of cancer, coronary artery disease, and dementia. And the belief is is that because you throw this off. So the circadian rhythm, I am fortunate enough that I'm not a shift worker. And I really try to fit with that. And I really try to make sure that I'm within those certain windows, those time windows. But I understand that if people are having jobs that they can't do that that it's all kind of relative to that.
0: Yeah, and I do wonder though, especially the difference between shift workers versus just eating late at night because I feel like with shift work it's creating a whole different lifestyle and paradigm which might also have other influential factors versus, you know, having a quote normal daily rhythm but just eating later. But yeah, it's definitely a really nuanced topic. I know one of the things that, not with Dr. Panda's work specifically, but in general, a lot of the studies, and Jen and I have talked about this before, there'll be a lot of studies about how eating late affects, for example, like insulin production and that you're not as insulin sensitive at night. But sometimes I wonder if that's just because when the studies are done, it's because people have been eating all throughout the day and you kind of lose your insulin sensitivity as it goes. Like I was just looking at a study really recently and they were looking at the progressive insulin spikes after meals. The conclusion was that late night eating created the worst insulin sensitivity, but it was like, it was on a scale. So like each meal throughout the day, the insulin sensitivity got progressively worse. And it was a, I think it was a factor of the continuing eating process rather than because this meal was late at night whereas if you haven't eaten all day it's quite possible that you're very insulin sensitive when you do have that dinner meal jen did you want to jump in no i think
1: that is a very interesting point there're just so many factors and you know scientific research with people is tricky because you know we it, it's hard to control for things with humans it's hard as we try
2: So that's how come that human studies have been very, very difficult to do. Now, let's start adding in some of the data that Sachin has done where he looked at time-restricted feeding and how that affects the circadian rhythm of both peripheral organs, the microbiome, and the hippocampus. So what's really interesting, Melanie, is that you bring up the fact that if you're doing a time-restricted feeding and you eat later, will you still have those same effects that somebody that is on shift work, which is kind of what he was comparing it to. So if you can ideally be in circadian rhythm, that would be the easiest thing to do. But if you do time-restricted, can you move that circadian clock a little bit? Can you still have the same benefits? And then if you look at his data on the mice, they have shown that doing the time-restricted eating, not necessarily circadian, but time-restricted, that you can have an increased microbial diversity which ultimately may be the beneficial thing that we're really looking for. You can have the whole process of the liver doing a feedback loop to see if you can start metabolizing the things better. So it gets really, really complex. But if you're going to eat late, at least do it in a time-restricted way is the way that I take away from that.
1: I think that's an excellent summary of that because a lot of the you know don't eat late, people are eating all day, like Melanie said – And and so stopping eating earlier is certainly going to be a healthy choice. You were just you know trying to shrink that eating window. For me though, you know I like to have an evening window because I like to have a glass of wine. That isn't going to work very well at 10 (laughs) a.m. I mean maybe it would. I don't know. (laughs) But
2: unless you're at an all inclusive resort in Cabo or something,
1: I guess there you go, there you go. But it just it fits into my lifestyle to wind down at the end of the day with a nice meal and a glass of wine, and then you know. Soon after that, maybe in a couple hours, it's time for bed.
2: Well, let, let's go ahead. We talked about this a little bit on the last show, but remember that glass of wine has polyphenols, which are fasting mimetic molecules. So maybe you're doing something good with the wine.
1: I think so. And I'm trying to bring in more red wine. I'm a real, I'm a, a white and sparkling wine lover, but making an effort to drink, I like red wine too. I love my
0: red wine. <laughs>
2: You can get polyphenols in a lot of different places, but that is one of the things that we're learning. I mean, you know, so the benefits of intermittent fasting, and I'm sure you guys have talked about this ad nauseum, but I always have to tell my patients, this is why I choose to do it. So, oh, for the record, when I chose to start doing intermittent fasting, it actually started when I started researching to do this podcast. And I was like, wow, there's some really good data on this.
1: I didn't know that. I love that.
2: Yeah. So I was I was researching about this because I was going to go on in like a couple months or whatever it was. And um, I was like, oh my gosh, there's actually data on this. This is cool.
1: Yeah. We did not just make this all up.
2: <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that what I was doing is I was actually not hacking, but I was kind of destroying my intermittent fast because I was trying to do too many things at the same time. Like I would wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm fasting. I'm going to take some exogenous ketones and go work out which some people do and they use that as fuel if they're in a total state of ketosis and then I would do some fats and then I would take my fish oil and I would take whatever else I was doing but I didn't realize that after I've read into that those are actually calories that your body actually has to turn on the whole digestive process right so I didn't have you know the benefits that I was kind of expecting and I did the same thing that everybody does I did it for about I don't know Two weeks on, a week off, this didn't work, shoot, I'm hungry today, blah, blah, blah. But I've been pretty consistent after reading this data, not looking at myself in the mirror and going, you look better or you look worse. I can go, I know for a fact that if I continue this, I'm going to decrease my oxidative stress. I'm going to decrease my TNF alpha, which is an inflammatory marker. We're going to decrease the coronary vascular risk ultimately cause autophagy where the cells that are sick and dying uh, get rid of themselves and you know decrease the whole mtor pathway all the stuff that goes on when i started realizing no 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 we're doing this for a cellular thing we're not doing this for a vanity thing i'm not doing this for a i want to um you know talk about it with my patients really committed to it and it took about 3 4 months i don't remember last time i was on but it's got to be close to a year it took about three, four months, and I've actually put on some muscle mass. I've decreased a bit of fat, and I have not changed my caloric intake, and I still have my wine at night. So,
1: so you have discovered the clean fast. That's what what we call it. You're skipping, yeah. skipping the ketones, skipping the fat in your coffee, and letting your body make ketones from your own body fat and getting your fat from from yourself.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's some data now to show that possibly you can have a synergistic effect, meaning that you can augment the fast by taking polyphenols and by exercising.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely.
2: All three of those can work together to sort of augment the whole process.
1: Well, like like coffee, coffee, for example, there's debate in, you know, upper scientific discussions about coffee. And, you know, then there's the, the researchers who are studying coffee and how it increases autophagy. And it's, of course, we think the polyphenols in there. But, You know, I I really do believe that coffee adds to the benefit that we're looking for during the fast.
2: Well, that kind of leads right into this. I will say this one thing. You were discussing keto. I made the mistake of playing dirty keto where like when it was convenient, I was keto. I went to my doctor who's a functional medicine doctor and he checked my blood work and he called me up and he's like, what have you been doing? I'm like, I've been doing keto. He's like, no, you haven't. (laughs) <laughs> you've been doing one of those people that like thinks they're in keto, but you're just having fun when you want to have fun. I'm like, yeah, keto. Right. He's like, no, your, your blood work's all messed up. Stop that.
0: Can I jump in really quickly? I feel so passionate about that concept. I think people can do potentially very serious metabolic harm if they attempt a ketogenic diet, sort of go there. So they're like- 100% you know, they're like maybe adding lots of fat, they're cutting the carbs, but then, you know, they're not quite getting there. So then they're in this state where they're, you know, they're I mean, no pun intended, potentially saturated and fat in their body, but then not being keto consistently, they're still like fluctuating with the insulin and bringing in the carbs. So then they have all this extra fat to deal with. I personally feel like it can be quite a problem. I remember when I was first writing a really long blog post about keto because I would read things and people would say, you know, try keto and, you know, if it doesn't work, that's fine. You have some carbs, that's okay. And I personally feel like if you've, if you've attempted keto and you're like, you're doing the high fat, you cut the carbs and then you feel the need to, you know, binge or break your keto, I would almost think it would be, quote, safer to calm that sugar craving with something non-caloric like stevia or something and just let, let that all of that extra fat and all that um, extra energy, you know, be processed by your body before you bring on the carbs because I think people can probably do metabolic stress when they bring in all those compounds at once or like, you know, carbs, protein, fat in high amounts. Does that, does that make sense?
2: Oh, it makes total sense. It was funny because it was it was like a scared straight episode for me, where I just kind of laughed, where I was like, "Oh my goodness!" So I jumped immediately into a five day fast. I went from dirty keto to, "Uh oh, we better reset here." <laughs> I ended up doing the fasting mimicking diet for five days. So,
0: oh wait, can you talk about that? Because that, that's another thing I'm really obsessed with. So you did fasting mimicking, not like straight water fast.
2: I have done okay. So this year, so the so the key to f- fasting. I think that Walter Longo, when he talks about it, if you do three months in a row, or if you do, I've read that if you can do three times a year or four times a year, I'm sorry, four times a year, a five-day fast of some sort, that that's equivalent to being in ketosis the whole year. So this is all based off Walter Longo's.
0: I've heard that it's the equivalent of like it does some like crazy things as far as like cancer prevention and gene expression. So you've read that it's like the the equivalent of ketosis the whole year, keto diet the whole year?
2: So yeah, there's like in in one of the things, it was one of Vulture's podcasts or something. Joe Atun, the CEO of that company and I are in in a similar entrepreneur group and we get to talking like this and get super geeky. And sometimes I, I may overlap some of the stories, but they're doing a ton of research and I commend El Nutra for what they're doing because they're basing everything on science. So basically, the fasting-mimicking diet is based off of Volter Longo's research. Have you guys talked about this on your podcast? Am I being redundant?
1: Oh, we have, yes. But not redundant. It's not redundant. It's good. It's good follow-up.
2: So the short of it is, how do you, in an animal model, control a small amount of food so that you're not going completely nuts and you can still get the benefits of fasting? The true benefits of fasting, Volter figured out, happen at day four and five. So people will sometimes fast for 24 hours, which is good. They may fast for 48 hours, but by the time you're there, you're starting to feel pretty miserable and most people bow out. The real magic happens at day four and five. And that's when you create a tremendous amount of autophagy and you turn on your stem cells and these stem cells turn on and it's almost like a rejuvenation type process. So if you can do that periodically throughout the year, you can hedge your bed a little bit as the way that I see it. So I did this dirty keto for a few months and I was like, whoops. We better just turn those stem cells back on and see what happens and get back to normal. And a lot of people have shown that that decreases fat in the liver, that metabolizes the cholesterol. Your body in that fasted state, what it's doing is it releases a hormone called erectin, I believe. Erectin, which is a brain stimulation type thing. So it's almost a euphoria that takes place. And when that happens... If you think back to when we were cave dwellers, if you hadn't eaten for four days, if you didn't get up off your butt and go chase something down and or go pick something and bring it back, then everyone dies. So there's this this surge. That's that stem cell thing that takes place. So you get the surge of energy. You go out and do that, and you bring back food for the tribe. That's the fasting mimicking diet where you take a certain amount of calories and you trick your body plant-based foods into thinking that it's fasting. Actually, it's funny. I made my whole company do it. So I forced everybody to do it at once and we did a little video on it.
1: That is so funny. I love that.
2: <laughs> yeah, so everybody at Teal did it and uh, we did a little video on it. Uh, everybody had differing experiences. A couple people couldn't do it. A couple people didn't have an issue with it. Others were pretty miserable and don't want to do it again, but it's all relative. I do know that uh, do you guys know Dan Pompa?
0: Yes. all Yep. Yeah. He he actually is probably coming on our podcast in the future, which is pretty exciting.
2: Oh, he's a super great guy, but really a very knowledgeable fasting person. His motto is live it to teach it. So everyone that works with him has to fast and all that. I gave a lecture at one of his health conferences, and it's the first lecture I've ever gone to where the whole audience, probably 400 people, is all fasting. I'm like, wow. <laughs> so- as you continue to do it more, it gets a little easier. So I did fasting mimicking once, check my ketone levels. And the next time I did it, I tried to replicate it sort of with my own kind of home version of it.
0: I was going to ask, was it, so you used Prolon the first time?
2: I used Prolon the first time. I tried to kind of hack it the second time. And the results, I did not have that orexin rush. And then the third time I did a pure water fast, this is just this year. And so the third time I did a pure water fast, and then I just got done doing another Prolon fast. So I did four. I did four this year. So I did Prolon, try to fake it, water, Prolon.
0: I am loving this conversation so much, by the way. I've been like so obsessed with this. So keep, keep going. I'm loving hearing the experience.
2: And what I found is it's in what, at least from a ketosis level, I did not throw myself too much out of ketosis or anything while I was eating. And it did mentally allow me to at least kind of have that idea that I'm looking forward to a little food. There's a guy that you should have on your show. His name is Chang Ron, R-A-U-N, a a doctor out of Houston. Super cool guy. He's an advocate of Prolon. He's also very knowledgeable, a lot of other things, but really, really cool guy. Him and I are friends. He can get a little bit more into the, the details as to why. Prolon may be a better idea than as a water fast. But there was a recent article that we talked about, I guess it was about a month ago, where Walter Longo published a study in mice with ulcerative colitis. And he took three groups of mice. One was a eating mice. One was a group that did the Prolon fast. And one was a water fast. And what they showed was after the Prolon fast, they were able to demonstrate that leaky gut decreased and they went into remission from their colitis. Wow. The control group did not, and they were very sick, and the water fast group some went into remission, but they had a greater experience with the prolong. So it's conceivable that the amount of stress that we go through. And I don't know, this is something that, you know, because Dan Pompa is a really big water fast person. Walter is obviously the prolong, but it's conceivable that the fasting mimicking diet may not be as big of a stress and your hormetic response, meaning your body's ability to adapt may be easier. I don't know, but I'm still playing around with it. I'm not a fasting expert. I just find it super fascinating.
0: Today's podcast is also supported by one of our favorites, Bonafide Provisions Bone Broth. These amazing organic grass-fed bone broths come frozen. They're not shelf-stable, and that's for a reason. That's because they're made with no preservatives, just like you'd make at home. They're certified organic, and they gel. That's a sign that they've been made correctly, and they're full of super nourishing collagen. And what's super awesome is Bonafide just launched their brand new Keto Broth Cups. So what is Keto Broth? Well, it combines their organic bone broth with MCT oil and other healthy fats to help promote ketosis. And what's super awesome is they're available in convenient single-serving heat and go cups that you can take with you on the go. So you can really drink them anywhere, at the office, while you're out with friends. They're an amazing way to break your fast, and they are super healthy even if you're not doing keto. We're talking 15 grams of fat, 10 grams of protein, and 0 grams of sugar. You can get Bonafide's traditional broths and soups in the frozen section of many grocery stores, while the Keto Broth Cups are available only online for now. But guess what? You can try them for free! So we have a new offer from Bonafide for listeners. If you go to bonafideprovisions.com to place an online order, and then add any three Keto broths of your choice to your cart, and use the code IF3FREE at checkout, you'll get them for free with your order. How awesome is that? So again, that code is IF3, like the number, and then the word free. So I'll put all of this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. I have a question
1: too. Your opinion of how you felt with the water fast versus the the prolon, those two specifically, how did you feel different? I know you mentioned already that you know the idea of having the food, you liked having the food. Did it seem easier with the food then? It seemed easier to fast? The reason I ask is because we talk about this sometimes in my Facebook groups, and there was a girl who talked about, she, she did the prolonged fasting, and she actually found it was harder for her than doing a, a full fast.
2: Interesting. The comparison I would have, so Eric Rieger, my partner, that um, and you guys communicate with him, he chose to do the water fast the first time when the whole company did the prolonged and he had a really difficult time. And he had to bow out at day four. He was looking pretty, pretty puny. No, I think he made the whole thing. But he was looking really puny. He kind of did a half prolon the next time. I find it more palatable to to do the prolon. I found myself just chugging just insane amounts of carbonated water and you know potassium, sodium water that I was just adding a little potassium salt to it. I found myself just obsessed with keeping something in my mouth when I was doing the water.
1: Now, my question is this, for him, was he new to fasting at the time that he tried to do the five-day water fast, or was he an experienced intermittent faster? I wonder if that would be part of the difference.
2: So... Yes, we were all new. It was like, "Hey, everybody, quit eating starting now." Right? <laughs> and they made the whole company do it. Yeah.
1: The person that was reporting about it in our Facebook group, she's an experienced intermittent faster. So I wonder if if that is one thing that made it so much harder. Because when you're when your body is adapted to fasting, for me, I feel like eating small amounts of food would make it harder for me. But my body is so adapted to fasting. But I just I wonder that that would be just an, one more factor. See, humans hard to control. <laughs>
2: It really is, and I'm friends with Joe and Walter and Chang and all these guys that are involved with it. ProLon is really meant for the masses. If you're if you're already fasting and stuff, I didn't actually do any of the soups because they have a little bit of sugar in them. So I was able to do the whole thing without really having any issues. Yeah, so I think that ProLon is a really great way to introduce the masses into fasting. I think that somebody who's experienced at fasting could modify it a little bit fairly easily. Now, the other thing that we get into is when we talk about the synergy, there was an article that came out with the caloric restriction mimetics. That's going to be a new term that you're going to see a whole lot. CRMs, caloric restriction mimetics. And those are the molecules that actually do the exact same thing that fasting does. And things like polyphenols, polyphenols are the newest, biggest one that people are really looking at. Where they're talking about how that causes the autophagy, it causes an increase in CERT one and that is one of the chemical mediators that gets cell turnover to happen and decreases the mTOR pathway. The mTOR is what makes cells grow. So all these things that are fasting, now we're learning that moderate exercise with recovery does the same thing because that's that hormetic response you have to be able to fast and then refeed. You have to be able to exercise and then recover. You have to be able to eat and allow your body to adapt to the food that you're actually giving it. So the future of this is going to be the combination of, I think the beauty is intermittent fasting, exercising, and polyphenols added to it. You're going to get the synergistic response to it.
0: Awesome. That's something we've talked about recently as well is that not all of the magic is completely in the fast. It also is in the refeeding as well. Like they're both equally important. And before we moved on from the the fasting mimicking diet, I wanted to ask you a few, few quick questions. First of all, with the actual prolon, since you are a gastroenterologist and you do have experience with a lot of people who have GI distress, do you think the prolon... Like For people who have food sensitivities or digestive issues, could that be a problem? And would they maybe function better on their, quote, homemade version? And then also, what was your, quote, homemade version of the fasting-mimicking diet?
2: So I'll start with what was my homemade version. I just tried to look at what the calories were and where they got them and tried to mimic it almost identical. Went to Whole Foods and said, okay, I'm going to get five olives here. I'm going to get some nuts here. I'm going to get these kale chips here. Tried to mimic it like that.
0: Do you find the Prolon to be pretty... (laughs) Well-tolerated? That would be the word.
2: (laughs) So I have not honestly had that much experience putting patients on it. And this is full disclosure that you have to be able to pay that kind of money to do it. So my patients that have bacterial overgrowth, SIBO or bad IBS, they are very sensitive to foods. I have had people with severe inflammatory bowel disease where I tell them, look, this mouse model shows that maybe something's going on where we can turn off your immune system. And I'm very adamant about them doing that. Those people tolerate it, but we're not talking about the food sensitivity people. There are certain aspects of Prolon, which some people have problems with. I mean, it's prepackaged food. There's some sugar in it. There's things in there to make sure that the general public can still take it. So if you're very sensitive, I would suggest talking to your doctor about that, I did not have that many issues when I took it. I do know that some people do have bloating. So I was. this is how Chang and I got to talking where he was discussing possibly doing a protocol with adding the fasting mimetic molecules of polyphenols from atron to help with the bloating that people get while they do prolon. And that's a fascinating concept where we team up together and go, okay, we're going to help you with the bloating and we're going to augment your fast. But that's research that needs to be done. And Volter's probably throwing, if he hears this, he'll probably go, no, that's impure.
1: <laughs> Another variable, see, humans are hard to control.
2: <laughs> I know. It's so fascinating. And if you just sit there and think, is there a mechanistic plausibility? Yes is there anybody out there doing animal studies? And you will be shocked at how much science is out there that nobody talks about because it's hard to read. It's buried somewhere. It didn't make it into the new England journal of medicine. And it certainly didn't make it into the Huffington post or something like that. And then you go, okay, look, there's, there's physiologic plausibility. We've got animal models. There's no harm because we're talking about diet and lifestyle. I don't see why not try something like this. And that's that's where I'm at in my career right now, where it's like, okay, let's start piecing it all together. As we said in the very beginning, bridging these gaps, seeing how we can make everything a little bit better.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the most motivating things, like you said, you can always make things better. You can always try new things. And then I'm just so assured. And I think it's so amazing how much radical change Has been shown with some of these approaches that you can make, you know, so much progress in your health with such short-term interventions. That's why I'm really inspired by them. When you did the water only, was that difficult for you? Did you say?
2: Well, it's funny, Jen, because you brought that up. So by the time I did the water, I'd already done two other fasts, and then by the time I did my fourth prolon, it was kind of like, eh. I almost felt like I was cheating a little bit. Right. I was. Totally in ketosis, and you know, I I slept good and all that stuff. So the water fast. By the time I did it, I was kind of prepared. And I've also learned that going into ketosis before you head into a fast helps. I think.
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah.
2: And you can you can ease into that. But I really do think that if you want to sit there and talk about one of the greatest life hacks you can do, it's fasting and trying to talk to my. Well, I'll give you an example. I'm in the doctor's lounge at my hospital and I was discussing fasting and ketosis with some cancer doctors oncologists. I said, "Do you guys ever recommend fasting before you give chemotherapy or going into ketosis because of all the data that's out there now?" And I basically got laughed off the table. They're like, "Are you insane?" Cancer patients are malnourished. Cancer patients need this. We need to feed them. They need to get any calories they want. And I'm like, the way that I explain it to my patients. And so then I've had a couple patients come see me that I've put on Prolon for pre-chemotherapeutic treatments. Doctors, for instance, that have come to see me. They're like, look, I heard you on some place. I've got this XYZ cancer. First time I did chemo, it almost killed me you were talking about doing some different tricks. And I said, yeah. So this doctor did the prolon fast before going into his next chemotherapeutic thing. Now, when we think about it, the way that I explained it to him, cancers are really dumb, fast growing animals. And if you are a tribe that's like around a campfire, let's say in this Big, giant, rabid, saber tooth tiger is running down. That's the cancer. Then all the healthy people run into the cave and hide. The sick people, the ones that are already dying, stay outside and die. And then you throw, the people in the cave throw the chemotherapy out there. The rabid animal is too dumb to understand, and it eats it. So when I'm explaining it to cancer patients, I'm like, your healthy cells need to go into hibernation. Your cancer cells genetically cannot.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
2: Yeah. They're going to starve. So they will eat anything you throw at them. That's why it works so well in cancer when you fast. Does that make sense?
1: That's a fabulous explanation. Yeah. Those cells are not smart enough to, to do what our healthy cells do, basically.
2: Correct. So they also grow unchecked. Their mTOR is turned on, and they just grow. They're just big, OFI cells occupying space, and the bigger they get, the bigger they want to be, which is why when you do intermittent fasting, you decrease the mTOR pathway. So even intermittent fasting is going to get these cells to stop growing at possibly a slower rate. But That's why I'm so passionate about
0: these different ways of fasting. No, that's absolutely fantastic. And okay, there's another topic I'd really love to discuss. (laughs) It's a bit controversial, but I think you'll have a very interesting perspective on it with your background, especially with the gastroenterology aspect, as well as the polyphenols. I would love to hear your thoughts on the carnivore diet, which is becoming all the rage, just as far as Ketosis, how it would affect the gut microbiome, and then also the polyphenols, because a lot of the advocates of the carnivore diet would argue that polyphenols are, or that, you know, a lot of compounds and plants that we see as beneficial are actually toxic to our bodies. And that's how they're working to create beneficial effects on our bodies, and that we would actually be better off foregoing them completely. So I would love to hear your thoughts on that.
2: The carnivore diet is not something I'm that familiar with, but let's talk about exactly what I was saying before, the plausibility of something. So let's address the the aspect that possibly plants can be bad for you. It's really interesting because there's two sides to this. So we know that the polyphenols themselves are antioxidants. So some people argue that if you have antioxidants, you never allow your body to have the hormetic effect or the adaption effect. And then there's scientists out there giving massive doses of polyphenols to animals, and they're showing, hey, these polyphenols actually are a pro-oxidative effect, so they can actually create some sort of damage. Other scientists are out there going, these polyphenols Cause autophagy, and maybe they're causing autophagy in good cells and not bad cells. So, the long story short is that we're probably overthinking it too much. Mother Nature does a really good job of deciding what they're going to use. So, the one thing that the carnivore diet people are not addressing is that we know that 90 or maybe even greater than that percent of the polyphenols that we eat, including the polyphenols in Atranteel. They go to the colon where your colonic bacteria, your microbiome, are breaking them down into different molecules that work as both anti-aging and anti-inflammatory molecules called postbiotics. So this is a whole new field of study. So if you have the proper microbiome and you're feeding them these molecules that really don't even get absorbed until they get to the colon, then theoretically, that's what makes the Mediterranean diet so healthy. So the people doing the carnivore diet would say, well, plants are bad because they can conceivably hurt you. There's another reason why they could hurt you, but that's how we spray the crops. Whole separate discussion. That's That's a whole separate discussion. But from a molecular standpoint, that could actually happen. So my feeling is if you have the proper microbiome, you can eat a proper Mediterranean diet and be okay, which is why in that area of the world, they have fewer diabetes, fewer coronary vascular disease, fewer dementia. They outlive us and yet they still smoke, they drink, they eat dinner at midnight, whatever. They do all the fun stuff. (laughs) They still outlive us. And that's been shown consistently with all that. So that being said, I can see why they would say, look, you don't really need plants. Now, as a gastroenterologist, my knee-jerk reaction is we have to feed our microbiome to keep it diversified. Otherwise, you will end up with a very narrow spectrum. If you end up with a narrow spectrum, then disease starts happening. You want your microbiome to have... There's 100 trillion bacteria there. You want them thousands of species. Right. So then when you listen to people like Dr. Sean Baker or Jordan Peterson... People that are very big advocates of the carnivore diet, they can come back and say, Look, your body will adapt to the meat and your microbiome will adapt to that. And so you have these people that are out there, you know, in their 50s and 60s looking like they're 40, looking like somebody who's on a very ketogenic type diet and working out and doing all this stuff and just eating sirloins, you know, whenever they want. And I don't know enough about it. But it does make sense that in certain areas, as we evolved, there were periods where those races could only eat meat. So in Alaska, you're not going to have fruits and vegetables in the dead of winter. You're going to have whale blubber, seal, and so on to survive. So they essentially were ketogenic during that period. There's different tribes in Africa which were shown that things wouldn't grow, so they survived on animals. So it comes down to that thing where I don't know enough about it, but I wouldn't just sit there and laugh it off because if you can adapt to it, possibly it's healthy. If you can become keto adaptive, it's healthy. If you're doing dirty keto, you're going to do what I did and jack up your blood work. So the carnivore diet is, I don't know. I don't know if I could eat meat all day long.
0: <laughs> I know I could not. <laughs> I love I love my veggies. Well, I mean, I basically did in the past before this was a thing, like ten years ago. <laughs> but um,
2: how did you feel doing that?
0: I mean, maybe it was a dirty carnivore, but
2: dirty. <laughs> We're gonna come up with all these terms.
0: No, because actually, one of the reasons I got one of my like first dietary hacks was I went through a period where I basically ate chicken and coconut oil. So I know coconut oil is not carnivore, but it, there was no fiber, and it was very um, ketogenic. And yeah, so pretty similar. And I mean, I felt great. (laughs) And I had no bloating. I had no GI distress. I had great energy. But then I did find when I brought back in plant, and that was pre-paleo as well. So I was eating like rotisserie chickens from the store that probably had, you know, additives. Not to be crazy, but it wasn't like, quote, paleo. But then I found that when I moved to more whole foods, brought back in fruits and vegetables, that I was a much happier camper, and enjoyed that more until I got digestive issues, and that's when things got crazy again. And that's when I started really reanalyzing. But I've been contemplating the idea of a meat-only diet for like ten years, and so now I find it really interesting that it's really, really popular. Because I'm just like, I'm like, guys, I've been thinking about this for a long time. Just but the concept of meat having potentially no. Autoimmune spiking factors or toxins or anything. So for people who are really sensitive, it makes sense that, oh, there's a way to get complete nutrition without any toxins or anything that might throw your immune system off. So kind of like a so sort of like fasting in a way, but kind of like a an eating fast.
2: The only thing that I wrestle a little bit with is that when we so you know, I mean my world's a microbiome and whatnot. And we know that the micro, your own microbiome has its own circadian rhythm. So it will have, when you have a diverse microbiome, it's been shown that you will have this circadian rhythm and they will release hormones, they will release different cytokines in sort of concert with this circadian rhythm of your gut. So who's in control of who? Is your intestinal motility... Controlling the microbial circadian rhythm, or vice versa, and so on. So knowing that your microbiome is so important, and we don't really understand how to control it, I have a hard time thinking. It's hard not to feed that something. And when people sit there and talk about like, oh, will meat have you know ten pounds of meat in your colon by the time you die or whatever? That's not true. Meat actually gets absorbed really easy. It's a super, you know, super easy thing. I mean, I have patients with. Iliostomies, meaning that they have their colons out and they eat meat. And it's not like chunks of meat are coming out. I mean, it gets easily digested. So I'm just trying to think. I mean, I'm just, it's just another concept. I mean, how much bandwidth do we all have? I've got a lot of stuff going on in my brain and, you know, the carnivore diet just got thrown at me last night by you where I was like,
0: huh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Oh, sorry for the curveball. So many people are talking about it now. And I started a new podcast and I just had Paul Saladino on and he's an MD that's becoming a figure in the carnivore movement and he was bringing up a lot of points and I just get really excited about talking about it on a scientific perspective just because it ties into into everything we've been talking about with like nutrition, food, plant, gut microbiome, how our bodies react to things. So it's an interesting thought experiment at the very least.
2: Well, I mean, at the very least... Maybe one of the reasons why is because like we just touched on briefly is that if we're spraying these chemicals on our crops, you know, I don't know that big of a difference between, I just haven't done the research on it between grass fed and, um, you know, grain fed cattle or animals. But I do know that most of the people that are on the carnivore style lifestyle, they tend to do grass fed. And maybe that's one of the reasons why they feel better. I don't know.
0: No, yeah, that could definitely be a
2: factor. I grew up in Nebraska. My dad was a butcher. So this is not something I'm opposed to at all. This would be like, he, I mean, he died 20 years ago, but he would be pretty happy if I turned carnivore. Let's put it that way.
0: <laughs> I love that. I feel like we're going to have a part three episode in a year and you're going to be like, yeah, I did f- I did four rounds of the carnivore diet. <laughs> I did it different ways and here's what I found.
2: Yeah. It's just going to be like, so Melanie, have you started the styrofoam diet yet? Yeah. It turns out styrofoam's really good for you, only if you eat it.
0: Oh, man. Yeah. Did you want to talk about anything else with the polyphenols? I know that's near and dear to your heart.
2: Well, just that, I mean, it's, it's just funny that when we launched Atrantil, we did it for bloating and irritable bowel-like type syndrome and you know, changing bowel habits. And now all this information is coming out on polyphenols. And the one thing that we are learning, and I'm working with a lot of athletic trainers right now is that the polyphenols actually do help with recovery. They get rid of reactive nitrogen species and reactive oxygen species, and they can increase nitric oxide to the muscles. So there's a lot of new evidence coming out that different athletic fields are doing polyphenol loads before and after an athletic performance to both help performance and help recovery. A lot of the patients I see are very intense athletes, endurance athletes, bodybuilders, and so on. And those people really tend to push their bodies to the limits. And when they do that, they set themselves up for digestive distress. So that's the the next wave. That's the next field of where we're headed. And we are pretty excited to try teaming up with some different nutritionists, some different athletic trainers to see if we can start augmenting the athletic performance field using polyphenols.
1: I wanted to touch on what you just said. People who are the endurance athletes end up having digestive troubles. Could you elaborate a little bit more? What What's the connection there?
2: Yeah. So, if any of your listeners are marathon runners, they're nodding their head right now, going, "Oh yeah," because what happens is when you are doing, a, I'll just use endurance athletes because they tend to be the ones that that's kind of so many porta potties along the way whenever you do a marathon. <laughs> I've had a ton of patients triathletes and marathon runners who've gotten their personal best after we treat them with outrantil and we treat what I presume is bacterial overgrowth. Okay. When you run, you shift the blood flow to your muscles. So you decrease perfusion to your gut. Everything comes down to motility. Remember when we we're talking about the circadian rhythm and all that, you can disrupt the motility. If that happens, bacteria can start to grow. Then it's a perfect setup because as you really push yourself. Then you can end up having little intestinal permeability or leaky gut. So a lot of times runners and triathletes, they'll take that fructose-based stuff like goo or whatever it is. Well, your body has kind of a hard time digesting that. Everybody started making these fructose-based things thinking that it would freely absorb, but you can saturate the receptors. And then it works like two ways. It works like an osmotic laxative, meaning that it draws water into the lumen, And bacteria that are around love that. So they start chomping on it. So now you've got increased fluid and you've got increased gas. And as you're running, you're shaking everything up and moving around. So I have a lot of people that tell me, they're like, I'm not really sure if I did a personal best because athletically I performed better. I had increased nitric oxide to my muscles. I had these reactive oxygen species gone, or I just didn't have to stop and go poop all the time while I was running.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Well,
0: that was a great scientific explanation, and now I get it.
2: So, yeah, everything comes down to the gut is what it comes.
0: Speaking of Entrentiel, would you like to recap a little bit about its initial purpose and how people can use it for IBS and SIBO? And then I'm so glad you brought all that up because one of the main questions we've been receiving from listeners a lot is, is should I still take Altrontil even if I don't have GI issues? Which it sounds like it can definitely benefit most people. So, would you like to just recap briefly Altrontil's initial purpose and then how we can also take it even if you don't have IBS or digestive issues?
2: Of course. So, we developed Altrontil. If you're somebody out there who bloats after you eat, so if you're you eat something particularly starchy foods and you bloat and you've been told you have irritable bowel or you've been, 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 to doctors, there is probably more than a four to five chance that taking two capsules three times a day is going to make you feel better. The key here is to commit to it because it could be that you have bacteria growing where it shouldn't, and you want to stay on it for at least 10 to 20 days. That is one subset. The next group of people that do really well with it are those with food sensitivities like myself. I'm gluten intolerant. I can actually eat some gluten as long as I take atron with it. And now we're learning the mechanism as to why. On a scientific level, it looks like it forms a little gel around gliadin, but that's a geeky stuff. Bottom line is, if you have gluten intolerance, this can help. And then what we've gotten into on the whole show is the benefits of the polyphenols. The three ingredients, the peppermint, the cabracho, and the tree are three polyphenols that work together to get rid of that bacteria, but they also go to your colon, where your colonic bacteria break it down into those anti-inflammatory, anti-aging, and fasting mimetic molecules that we've been talking about this whole hour. So you can take it every day. For those people, the carnivores that would say that they are harmful to you, yes, if you take a bottle every day, maybe it could be harmful. But in the doses where we're at, we know that it doesn't get absorbed, and your body will use what it needs. The beauty of Mother Nature is she knows what she needs. I've been on it. I mean, since we've even, before it even was put into a bottle, I've been taking it and I feel really good. So,
0: and do you take it and should listeners take it and can they take it while fasting with food only, especially for listeners following a one meal a day pattern? Let's say they're eating just at night. What would be the best timing to take that Atron Teal for those, I guess, who want to do a intense round because they have digestive distress versus just a more maintenance type approach?
2: If you have digested distress and it's gonna be two, three times a day, there's a small subset of people that may have a little bit of reaction to the conquer tree. After we've been in business for a few years, we do realize that some people they get a little sensitive. So we recommend with food, but it's not completely necessary. I take it on an empty stomach, I take it with food whenever I'm gonna eat gluten. And if you're just taking it for daily maintenance, you can take it whenever you want. Like I said. Most of those, the molecules are designed to stay in the small intestine so that it can go to the colon and your colonic bacteria will break it down into what it needs.
1: So it's perfectly fine to take it in the fasted state.
2: It is perfectly fine. So if you look at what's going on in the fasting world with Jason Fung and those guys, are you familiar with them?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, yes.
2: They've got a whole line of peak teas. They sent me a big box of peak teas so thank you for sending me that box of peak teas, whoever that was, P-I-Q-U-E. They're, they're looking at using those teas, which are all polyphenols to augment a fast or a five-day fast. So they're pushing to do the polyphenols with fasting.
0: Awesome. Good info. Yeah. So for listeners, and we actually do have a, uh, thank you for this, Dr. Brown, a wonderful offer for listeners. Dr. Brown and Atron Teal, they are offering listeners 10% off their purchase. So if you go to lovemytummy.com slash IFP, and then you're going to use the code IFP, and you'll get 10% off your purchase of Atron Teal. So we definitely, definitely cannot recommend that enough. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. And honestly, Dr. Brown, Atron Teal is – one of the few supplements that has remained a consistent in my arsenal and my, my personal stack of supplements and things. It's one of the few things that has stayed ever since I discovered it, I mean, years ago has stayed there and consistent. I always see benefits from it. So I really, really thank you for developing that.
2: Well, that's so awesome. And thank you so much for your support. As I said, you are definitely moving the needle. You know, The last time I went on, we got a lot of great feedback, And there's a lot of science going on. I'm working with a lot of different scientists and there's a lot of new research coming out. We're meeting with people. People are calling me. So all this stuff about the exercise benefits, all this stuff about the fasting benefits, all of that has just happened since I was last on the show. So if any of your listeners want to hit us up, just go to kbmdhealth.com, kbmdhealth.com to connect with me or go to atrontil.com also to get more information.
1: Perfect.
0: So we will put links to all of that in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for being here, especially with the voice situation.
2: Yes. Let's clarify one last time. Atron Teal does not make my voice sound like this. This is a recent cold that I had.
1: And neither does the fasting. It's not related to fasting.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I'll tell you what it is. Uh, Well, to be totally honest, the other thing we didn't get into is proper sleep hygiene. It's because I've been traveling and I got off my sleep schedule.
0: Oh yeah, it's important, yeah.
2: Oh, super important, yeah, so.
0: All right, well, I look forward to bring you back down the road for part three.
2: Absolutely, Jen, Melanie, it was a pleasure again. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it was great. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.